How y'all doing? You guys excited to hear a cool word from God today? I think, I think he's given me some really, really cool things that I'm super excited to be able to share with you guys. Hey, before I get going, really quick, um, just want to ask uh, for your patience. If you were here last weekend, um, I shared something uh, that I feel is important for me as the lead pastor here to share. And so if you're here last weekend, uh, forgive me, just be patient. But if you weren't, I want to make sure everybody has a chance to hear this. And just really quickly, in a nutshell, statistically, we know, unfortunately, most new churches fail within the first couple years for a variety of reasons, but the facts are most new churches will fail within the first two years. That, is, that has been proven time and again, and that's just a statistic that we see bearing out all the time. So that's the bad news. The good news is we just re-signed our lease for our third year, so we just committed to that, and we are moving forward into year three. So we are ahead of the curve. We're doing good. We're pushing forward in what God has called us to do. Um, but here's the other part of that. Statistics also tell us that approximately 50% of the people that attend any given church do not give financially to that church. That means about half of us do not give to the very church that we engage in. And so that's what I want to ask you. I want to ask you, if you, are a, if you are a giver right now, especially recurring givers, we love them because it helps us to budget and plan for our future. But if you are a recurring giver or, or a regular giver, thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness. That is what allows us to fulfill our vision and mission and go out in the community and do outreach and the things that we have planned. But... I want to challenge the rest of you. If you are here and you call this your church, if this is what you would say your church home is, and you're not a giver or you're not a regular giver, I want to challenge you to try it. Try giving financially to this church and to help us support our vision and mission as we move forward. Unfortunately, we can't go out and buy supplies from the food bank to give to the homeless on uh, well wishes and prayers. We need your financial support in order to make our vision and mission run. So I don't want to belabor the point, but I want to just ask you to just prayerfully consider, if you are not a giver, prayerfully consider giving to the vision of this church. And if you have more questions about where does that go and what do we do with it and all that stuff, I would be more than happy to share it with you. Or you could come to our town hall. Our town hall will be full of question and answer and back and forth, and we want to be totally transparent because it's you that God uses to bless the kingdom. And if you're a part of this body, together we can bless them in so much of a greater way than we can individually. And that's what being a part of a body is all about. Amen? Amen. All right, so anyway, let's, uh, let's move on. We are in the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so if you like a lot of teaching, I heard somebody the other day said, you're a teaching church. And I never really thought of that, but... Yeah, I kind of like that. I, my heart is that all of the mystery that's in the Bible, that so many people are just caught up in the, well, that's just weird. I don't get that. It doesn't make sense. My heart is that we would be able to dispel that. We would be able to teach our way through that in a way that makes the meaning of the word clear. I mean, it is, it's all in here, God's word for us, but so much of it is imagery. So much of it is, admittedly, it even says in there, this is a mystery. There are so many things that are in many ways meant to be a mystery, at least at a, at a quick glance. 
But the more you study it, the more you get into it, the more God's word comes out and his heart comes out for us, especially when you talk about the, the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. There is so much misunderstanding, so much mystery around that that a lot of people don't even attempt to read it. Well, it's like, oh, I'm just not going in there. It's only mildly distracting when you almost <laughs> crash with your coffee. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. But the Bible itself, again, says that a lot of this is a mystery. Here's what's cool, though. As things unfold, we get into this chapter. The chapter itself is called the revelation of Jesus Christ, meaning that in this chapter, a lot of those things that as you go through from Genesis all the way to the end of the Bible, all those chapters point in some way towards Jesus Christ, towards a Messiah, towards our need for a Savior, but some of those things are hidden. The revelation, the chapter that we're in now, is where all those things come to fruition, and we really get to see how everything plays out. And it's not a book about God's wrath and punishment and judgment and suffering and war and all these things, fire and brimstone. Yes, it's in there, but if that's all you take away from it, you haven't paid attention. This is a book about hope, a sovereign God that's in control and always has been in control. And so as we go through this, I hope that's the heart that comes out, not like, ooh, plagues of locusts and all that, you know, rivers and lakes of blood. That's all super fun stuff. (laughs) But I hope that's not your takeaway. Last week we talked about, we literally did talk about that. We talked about armies of locusts with tails like scorpions that could sting and torment a man. Um, we talked about the, the fifth and sixth trumpet judgments, um, armies of millions. And that can be a scary thing. Until you realize as we go through the entire chapter, you start reading it in context and realize that God's heart shines through even in the middle of all that. And you look and we're, and we're left with the idea that in today's society, we are so often just goaded into choosing sides. It seems like you can't be neutral. You know, some even Christians will point to the fact, Jesus said, I'd rather you're hot or cold and not lukewarm. Okay, I don't think he meant that in this context. But we're pushed. You have to be. You have to be Republican or Democrat. You have to be liberal or you have to be conservative or you have to be black or white or you have to be this or that. And, and you're always just made to choose a side. And so many people read the Revelation chapter as instructions on who to take sides against. They spend so much time trying to figure out, okay, who's the Antichrist going to be and when's he going to come and who's our ultimate enemy going to be? Is it going to be Islam? Is it going to be, how's it going to be? And we start advanced planning on who we're supposed to hate when the time comes. Jesus never gives us that instruction. He never says, search the mysteries of the word to find out who you need to prep against. Okay, how many freeze-dried meals do you need to have in your basement? And how many rounds of ammunition do you need to have in your basement 
And by the way, watch when these people come because they're going to be your enemy. Is any of that ever found in the word? It's not. But the world would have you choose sides. And the side we need to be on is the side of Jesus Christ. Amen? And by following him and by following the words that God so carefully recorded for us in this word, and by studying it, we can find out what our part is as things unfold. So let's get into it before we go any, any more into that backstory. Let's jump in. So this week, this week, I hope you like a lot of teaching. We're doing two chapters this week. We're doing 10 and 11. The reason we're doing 10 and 11 is so many times chapters flow into one another. All the chapter breaks, the page breaks, the things like that, that's all stuff that man has put in to kind of put some order to it. But really, this was just written as, for the most part, just one long revelation here. And so when we talk about chapters 10 and 11 and 12 and 13, some of them flow into each other, have a natural flow. And 10 and 11 are one of those. And in fact, chapter 12 is even a continuation of that. But we don't have that kind of time. Broncos play at two, so there's... I'll have you out in time to get home for that. But this week... We're not going there. That's divisive. (laughs) This week, as we look at chapters 10 and 11, what we see, we see this mysterious little book. Anybody ever heard the, the the little book talked about? What's in the little book? We see this giant angel that's in some ways even more mysterious, right? Who... Who is this giant angel? We get to meet these two special messengers of God. Who are they? Who are these special messengers? We also get to meet the Antichrist for the first time. We've seen his work. This time we actually get to see him. And then we hear the seventh trumpet sound, the sound of that seventh trumpet judgment, and we see the revelation of the true temple of God. So I think it's exciting. I hope you guys are ready for it. Let's get in. I'm going to read it. As I said before, this is the only book in the entire Bible that says you'll be blessed by reading it, blessed by hearing it. And so my heart, I'm going to read every single word of every single chapter. If you come here or listen to our podcasts, you're going to hear every single word in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ spoken here in this church. And so let's get into it. Revelation 10. It's 11 verses, 1 through 11. I use the New American Standard, so if you have it, you can follow along. If not, follow along in your Bible. It might be just a little bit different. If not, you can just listen and just kind of soak in the imagery of what's going on here. All right, remember, this is the the Apostle John speaking here. I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, and the rainbow was upon his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book, which was open. He placed his right foot on the sea and his left on the land. And he cried out with a loud voice, as when a lion roars. And when he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. When the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken, and do not write them. Then the angel who I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it and the earth and the things in it and the sea and the things in it, that there will be delay no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished as he preached to his servants 
the prophets. Then the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking to me and saying, Go, take the book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel, telling him to give me the little book. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. And in my mouth it was sweet as honey. And when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And they said to me, you must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. There's a lot there. And that's only the first chapter, right? Let's jump in without delay. Let's jump right in and start pulling apart some of these scriptures and take a look and really see what's going on here. Revelation 10.1. I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, and the rainbow was upon his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. Now, most of the things I'm going to teach you here today are things that scholars on both sides, they argue all, I should say both sides, there's multiple sides. People think that all these things represent different things. I'm going to tell you what I believe and why I believe that. Another strong angel, many, many people believe that that angel is Jesus Christ himself. They believe that because you start looking at some of the attributes, okay, came down out of heaven clothed with a cloud, a rainbow on his head. Some translations, instead of rainbow, it actually says halo, okay? Face was like the sun, feet like pillars of fire. He's so big in the next scripture that one foot is on land, one foot is on earth. He's got this little book in his hand. Many, many people look at that and think, okay, that, that's Jesus, and they can argue that. I don't believe that's Jesus, and here's why. First of all, another strong angel. We've seen strong angels appear before, and before we believe it was Gabriel probably. This may or may not be. We have no indication as to exactly who this is, but it's another strong angel. The word angel translates in Greek as angelos, and angelos just means a messenger. It's always used in context with an angel and not with Christ the Messiah, okay? So we know that. Coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud. Remember back in Exodus when the Israelites were being led around, God manifested his power and his guidance as a cloud, right? And they followed that. So we see that happen over and over again. That was Exodus 13 talks about that if you want to read it. The rainbow on his head. Okay, rainbow on his head, that word rainbow is iris in Greek. And again, iris means either halo or rainbow. could mean either one. But if you look at it as part of the covenant that God gave to Noah, because this book is all about God's covenant with us, God's promise. You know the difference between a covenant and a contract? A contract is a legal document that says, if you fail to fulfill your part, well, I'm out. I don't have to do anything that I've promised you. A covenant that God makes with us says, you are my people, and this is my covenant with you, and it's not based on anything that you do. It's based on who I am. And we should all say hallelujah to that because our failures would have let God out of his contract with us a long time ago. That's not what we're in with our Father, and thank you to him for that. Face like the sun, his feet like fillers of Pillars of fire, what that is is just an illustration of purification and judgment. Okay, so we see this. This isn't Jesus. This isn't God. It is a representative of God coming down, okay? 
to be a messenger. And we'll see what the message is here in just a moment. Revelation 10.2. And he added his hand a little book, which was open. He placed his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. The little book. Now, that's, that's our next mystery for today. What is this little book? What is it? People debate all over. This is the Bible. This is the scroll. This is actually that seventh scroll. Some people argue that the book is only little because the angel is so big. Okay? It's a big angel, so it looks little in his hand. I think that's kind of a reach. Here's what we do. When we study this out, we look at the little book. It specifically says it's a little book. Okay? Now, we know that the word book can translate as scroll and, and often does, and in this place it probably is a scroll. But we need to look a little bit more carefully at that word. So could be the sword of the Spirit, which is the Bible, right? We see that in Ephesians 6, the sword of the Spirit. Some say, again, that it's little. Some believe it's the scroll. But here's what I believe. That word little book translates as Bibliridian, okay? Don't need to necessarily know that, but here's what you do need to know. This is the only time that that word is used in the entire New Testament. Only time. This is a special little book. Okay, sometimes that word Bibliridian is used um, in regards to a journal or a condensed version of something. Okay, this is not the scroll. This is not the entire word of God. This is the only place that's used. Now, if we want to look into it a little bit more about what's going on here, we can use Scripture itself. Go into Scripture and find out what Scripture says is going on here. Okay, that actually, by the way, We'll give you a little brain food for today. That's called hermeneutics, the idea of taking Scripture and using it to interpret and figure out what's going on in other Scripture is a discipline called hermeneutics. So now you know that. Don't try to spell it. But you can throw it out in conversation. Just pepper your conversation with that. Let's go back. Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 1 through 3 says, I'm just going to read it to you. But it echoes what's going on here. Then he said to me, this is an angel speaking to the prophet Ezekiel, Son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll and go. Speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he fed me this scroll. He said to me, Son of man, feed your stomach and fill your body with this scroll which I'm giving you. Then I ate it and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. Okay, we see a parallel to this what what the angel of the Lord is showing and speaking to Ezekiel, the prophet, way back 600 years at least before, and then what's being spoken to John right now. They're both told to eat the book. They're both told both books that, that the book is going to be sweet to the taste and bitter in their stomach. It says that later. Both books contain prophecy which they are to digest. They're not literally eating it. Okay, that word basically essentially means to digest it, to devour it eagerly, which means look at it, learn it, read it, take it to heart. That's what this eat it is. It's not really eating the book. You're passionately taking it to heart, okay? And this isn't the entirety of the seven scrolls either. What I believe is this is the part that John needed to know to perform his ministry, We see that from time to time where a prophet is just given a part of the picture. They're not given the entire picture. He probably couldn't 
absorb that anyway. Couldn't fathom it. But he's been given exactly what he needs in order to move forward and do the job that he's called to do. I believe that's just a condensed version of these scrolls. So, Revelation 10.4, when the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken, and do not write them. (coughs) Excuse me. Seal up the things and do not write them. Now, seven peals of thunder, it's another thing. Is, Is this literal thunder? Are these beings? What exactly is going on here with the seven peals of thunder? Well, if we look at it, it says, seal up the things which they have spoken. And obviously what they have spoken is significant because John is like, oh, i got to write this down. This is good. And he's getting ready to write it, but the thunder is saying, don't. Don't. Don't speak them. Don't write them. Seal it up. And here's what we know. These are specific beings. It's not, it's not literal thunder. They are specific beings. They're speaking to John. Again, for his edification, it wouldn't add to the narrative of what needs to be relayed to us. But it was something very clearly that he needed. Okay? We see that happening all the time throughout the Bible just for his edification and not for us. But again, there are no exact clues as to who these are or why it's spoken like that. That's left to, left to us to, to kind of infer. Revelation 10, 5, and 6. Then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it, and the earth and the things in it, and the sea and the things in it, that there will be delay no longer. Now, in my version, all the caps refers, again, it refers back to Old Testament. In this case, it's just Exodus where they describe God like that. But the key here is there will be delay no longer. It's coming. Everything that you see happening, it is happening right now. Things are unfolding. That doesn't mean tomorrow. But that means these things are unfolding currently right now. Now, for again, for another hint on this, we can look back at Daniel. Daniel, remember, is the Old Testament revelation. It's the Old Testament apocalyptic literature. Daniel chapter 12, 6, 7 says, And one said to the man dressed in linen, it's a parallel to the exact same vision that John is getting right now. And one said to the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river, How long will it be until the end of these wonders? I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river, and he raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And as soon as they finished shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. Now, if you look at time, times, and half a time, that gives us some hints as far as the time frame of this, and we see this repeated all throughout this scripture here. A time is a year, times is two years, and half a time is half a year. So he's basically talking about three and a half years. And we see that. That's the second half of the tribulation period that he's talking about right here. The important thing to take away from there, though, is no more delay. John's work isn't over. He has to go out and share again, go out and prophesy again. Prophet Ezekiel, in fact, again, 600 years before, said this. This is Ezekiel 2.7, if you wanted to look it up. 
but you shall speak my words to them whether they listen or not, for they are rebellious. Good words for the rest of us. Speak the gospel whether they listen or not. Even the prophet Ezekiel is being told that he was a chosen prophet of God to relay God's message. And even then he's being told, they may not listen to you. Speak it anyway. And we can take that away from this. Let's move on to chapter 11 now. Revelation 11, this is verses 1 through 19. It's a little bit longer, so bear with me. But again, if you're just listening, just kind of soak up the imagery of what's going on here. And we'll go back and we'll take it apart here in just a minute. Revelation 11, 1 through 19. Then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff. And someone said, get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations. And they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. These have the power to shut up the sky so that the rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Those from the people and tribes and tongues and nations will look at the dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit the dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate And they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell upon those who were watching them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. Then they went up into heaven in the cloud and their enemies watched them. And in that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces And worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and you have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. And there were flashes of lightning, and sounds, and peals of thunder, and an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. That's a lot, right? There's a lot going on there, but it's amazing how it all all points back to Christ. 
Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 through 2, 1 and 2. Then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, Get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. There's that 42 months again. Anybody good at math? How long is that? It's three and a half years. The measuring rod, it was given to me a measuring rod like a staff. Now, a measuring rod back then, it was just, they didn't have tape measures and they didn't have, you know, surveying equipment. A measuring rod was just a standard length rod, probably bamboo or something, that they used to determine what belonged to somebody. If you wanted to find out, you know, where your property started and ended, they would use this measuring rod, and that's how they determined what belonged to whom. And in this case, he's explicitly being saying, don't even bother measuring the outer temple. Okay, remember the inner temple, the, the temple was divided into two pieces. There was the inner temple, which is where the, the people of God, the Israelites, that was where they were allowed. That's where they went to worship. The outer temple, though, the outer courts of the temple was where the Gentiles were allowed. Okay, and we see that all the way back when, when the Apostle Paul is writing his letters. We find out about this inner and outer temple Okay, um, here he's being told, don't even bother those who worship in the outside of the temple because God is now rejecting them. These are, this is the result of the scene of the forces of the Antichrist for three and a half years have been trampling Jerusalem, trampling the temple. They've been absolutely desecrating the temple. And God is saying, though the temple still belongs to me, that outer portion, I'm rejecting them now. He's saying, don't even bother measuring that. They do not belong to me. Again, this is a result of the forces of the Antichrist. We see this theme of three and a half years repeated over and over again. Jesus' reign, his ministry, not his reign, his ministry here on earth, okay, when he came back in the flesh, how long was that? Some people say three years. That's typical that they say that, but really if you study the Hebrew calendar and look at it, it's closer to three and a half years. I believe that's the significance of the three and a half. That was how long Jesus reigned here on earth. Moving on, Revelation 11, verse 3. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. How long is 1,260 days? Three and a half years. Again, again, three and a half years. But more importantly than that, who are these two witnesses? Does anybody have any idea who these two witnesses are? Any theories? There's a lot of theories. Hmm? Moses and Elijah, that's definitely a valid theory. There's many, many other ones. Let's look at Scripture and see what it says. Okay, Scripture says, when describing the two witnesses, Revelation eleven four, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Does that help? Crystal clear, right? Again, let's go back into Scripture and kind of get a little, little bit more meaning and maybe some more clues as what's going on here. Let's go now all the way back to Zechariah. Zechariah in the Old Testament, chapters 3 and 4, we see this happening. We see, we see Joshua, the high priest, and Zerubbabel, who is the prince of Judah. Okay, we see those two. And 
Zerubbabel had rebuilt the temple. Zerubbabel is actually the one that rebuilt the temple the second time after the Babylonians trashed it. So he has rebuilt this temple again. And they're asking, uh, Joshua and Zerubbabel are basically asking the same kind of questions that we see John here asking. So Zechariah 4.11 says, then I, this is in response to their question. Then I said to him, what are these two olive trees on the right of the lampstand and on the left? The answer comes in Zechariah 4.14. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. Does that give us any more clues? A little bit. There's a concept in the Bible um, called dual fulfillment. Dual fulfillment means that when you look back at prophecy or things that are happening, especially in the Old Testament, but in the New as well, we see a near-term fulfillment of that prophecy, and then we see a longer-term fulfillment. So when things are talked about back then as being prophesied, you can look back, you can study and say, well, that, that came to be in Babylon, or that came to be when the Roman Empire and, and, and this emperor did that. And we see that fulfillment, but we also see then a later second fulfillment that happens in the time of the revelation of Jesus Christ, towards the end times we see that, or even later on in the New Testament. So we see that idea of dual fulfillment happen all the time. In this case, that image of the lampstand and the olive trees really points to Jesus Christ and the church. That is a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ and the church. Let me explain that to you. A lampstand, you have a lampstand in the middle would be a bowl. And that bowl would contain olive oil. And the olive oil is what? The candles burnt on, or the lamps burnt off of that olive oil, right? The two olive trees signify Jesus as a continuous source. He is the vine. He is the continuous source of power, of olive oil in this case, in the imagery, for that lamp. The church being the lamp, it's not our job to provide light. We don't provide any light. Our job is just to hold up the light that Jesus creates, so we are that lamp stand being supplied by Jesus. So that's where that imagery comes from. It's a foreshadowing, okay? Jew, um, Christ is the vine. We are the branches, and we see that. That's where that imagery comes from. But here's some theories. A lot of people, when you ask who these messengers are, they can go through and they can pull out Scripture. If you want to look at this, it's all over the place on who these, who these two messengers are. Some people just simply say it's Zerubbabel and, uh, and Joshua. You can, you can read that, and it makes sense. Some people say it's Zechariah and Haggai. Some people say it's Peter and Paul. Peter and Paul might be a good one, okay? Peter, Peter is the, essentially the, the apostle to the Jewish nation, right? And then Paul being the apostle to the Gentiles. You could easily see that dual imagery coming in there. A lot of people would say that it's Moses and Aaron. Okay? Here's my theory. My theory says, Revelation eleven six. it's the next, next verse here. It says, these have the power to shut up the sky so that the rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. In other words, they've been given the power to command attention. Pay attention to me. Look at all the things that I'm doing here. Now, who else... Biblically, that is, has this particular set of skills. Moses. And who else? 
Moses and Elijah. We all know the story of Moses, and very good. We all know the story of Moses, right, and, all the, and the plagues and things like that. We've talked about that. James 5.17 says, Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for how long? Three and a half years. There's that number again. So I believe that it's Moses and Elijah, just Scripture pointing that way. Here's the other thing, though. It doesn't specifically say. Let's not get caught up in arguing how if you're one that likes to research and look and theorize and stuff, there's no harm in that. But let's don't get caught up in that because Scripture doesn't explicitly tell us. Therefore, it's not super important that we know. Jewish tradition does hold that it is Moses and Elijah, though. What we do know for sure, without a doubt, is that the actions of these two, their ability to to stop the rain, their ability to bring plagues and, and do these things, causes a great war and a great revival. We see both of those happening at the same time, but it's a major threat to the Antichrist. Remember, the Antichrist has had basically free reign here. Started out peacefully, getting people on his side. Hey, I'm a good guy. Follow me. Look at all the great things that I'm doing. And then started to turn dark. And we see that this is a major threat to his purposes. Revelation 11, 7, and 8. When they have finished their testimony... Okay, this is the two special messengers. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the streets of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. When they have finished their testimony, these are God's special chosen messengers. When their job is complete, when they have finished their testimony... The beast that comes up out of the abyss, this is the Antichrist. This is the first time we see him in person coming up. The beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. How can God allow his two special messengers that he sent specifically for this to be overcome and killed? And worse yet, their bodies lie in the street for all to see. How can a loving God allow that to happen? The rest of this here, mystically, the great city is Jerusalem, mystically called Sodom and Egypt. That's because through the Antichrist and his forces, his armies inhabiting Jerusalem, it's become a place resembling more Sodom, resembling more Egypt. It's no longer this holy city, at least at this time. But we know that that's Jerusalem. They're dead bodies will lie in the street. Here's how a God can let that happen. After three and a half days, the breath of life from God comes into them. They stand up on their feet, and they ascend into heaven to a voice that's literally calling down, saying, come up here. Now, if you're one of these rebellious people, these forces of of the Antichrist, You're one of the people that are left on earth and you're being rebellious. You're saying, I'm not going to follow God. I'm going to fight him. I'm on the side of the Antichrist. At this point, you would know what's going on. There's no more mystery. There's no more guessing who's who. You know the players at this point. And when you see this happening, what would be going through your head? 
Well, here's what happened, 11, uh, Revelation 11:13. And in that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to God. In other words, in the midst of all this, God is still trying to reach out. As bad as this sounds, as horrible as all this going on is, God is still using everything to try and reach out, trying to turn that heat up just enough to where people say, okay, what I'm doing is not working. This person I'm following is not working. There has to be something more. So we see here a massive killing off of people, 7,000. But what we also see is this massive repentance and people turning to God. There's a large number of people who are left. When it says they're terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven, that's repentance, and that's turning to God. Okay, so we see in the middle of that this, this massive turning to the Lord. Revelation eleven fourteen. the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. The seventh trumpet sounds, Revelation eleven fifteen. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Verses 16 and 17. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God saying, we give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. We see now the people who are left on earth are seeing this foreshadowing. This is happening. It's coming. The kingdom of our Lord is coming. We see his power, and he's beginning to reign. So if you're left here, again, your response, you see all these, happening, all these happenings, you, see, you, you hear the worship of the Lord, you hear all these things, and your response should probably be, if you're left on the earth, fear, repentance. And if you if you're decide, like, I'm not repentant of this, at the very least, you're going to find a rock to crawl under or something, right? I would, that's, that's what I would think. Here's the response, Revelation eleven eighteen, 18. And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. What that boils down to is they're no longer, the, the forces of the Antichrist, they're no longer fearful. They're no longer hiding. They're defiant. Those who are left on earth at this point are being defiant in the face of God's wrath that's coming at them. God's wrath meant to correct, meant to give them reason to turn to him, to seek a savior, but instead of accepting that or realizing that, they're becoming defiant, and they're turning even harder in their hearts. The time for the final judgment is drawing so near. The final verse of the chapter reads like this. This is verse 19, the very last one. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple, and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. Now the word and, when you see this start out with the word and, it usually indicates kind of a new thought. It's a trailing thought. That's why some people think that this verse really ought to be a part of chapter 12. In chapter 12, we see... um, We see the red dragon, Satan. We see him appear. 
we see him and his demons battling Michael the archangel. Come next week and we will, that's just a preview. But so why then is this verse, this verse, why is this included in this chapter? Why is this verse on God's temple so important for us to understand? In the midst of all this stuff that's going on, God's temple is finally revealed, and it says it's opened, meaning it's no longer a mystery. It's no longer open to just those few, but everyone can now see the temple of God in heaven. Everyone can see it, meaning that if you're here on earth at this point in the revelation, and you're still defiant, and you haven't decided to repent and follow God, fear him, call upon his name, if you haven't, then there's no more excuse. There are no more mysteries. There's nothing more being hidden. It is right there for you to see, and you've made up your mind which side you're going to be on. So when you hear people saying, how can fire and brimstone and all these things rain down on God's children? These are people who are left who are saying, I am not God's child. I never wanted to be. And I don't call Jesus my Lord and Savior. And I dare you to do something about it. You don't want to say that to God. But we see his true temple being revealed. Now, let's go back to something the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians Chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. He said, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Who's the you he's talking to? You. Worship team, you guys can go ahead and start heading up. You are the temple of God, and he will destroy anyone Anyone who destroys the temple of God. Church, God is on your side. The awesome power of God who can do all these things we've been talking about resides in you. You are his child and you are his true temple. His spirit lives in you. So as you read this, as you hear these things that are happening and you hear teaching on this, if there is the slightest inkling of fear in you, or nervousness, or anxiety about how things are going to unfold. It's only because you have not grasped that you are the temple of God. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, the temple of God is in you, and you have nothing to fear as these things unfold. It's important to know that, not just to give us a warm feel-good as we tuck ourselves in at night. I've got nothing to fear. The temple of God is in me. That's nice, right? But what's our mission? As long as we live and breathe and walk on this earth, what's our mission? To make the gospel of Jesus Christ known to everyone. So if we are here, if this all begins unfolding tomorrow, many of us will be raptured immediately. Some of us won't be. Some of us will be left here for a time to accomplish those things. We need to know who we are and our power and the fact that the sovereign God Almighty resides inside you because in the midst of all these things unfolding, we still have a job to do, and that is to take ground for the kingdom, to fight with our last breath to share the gospel of who Jesus Christ is. We have nothing to fear. 
because we are children of God. Amen. Church, there's no better way to celebrate that and what Jesus has done for us and our loving Father than to celebrate the remembrance of Jesus. He says, do this in remembrance of me. So we take communion together. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, communion is something we're called to do every time. And we do it every single week. So you don't have to be a member of the church or anything. At the crosses, we have juice and bread and gluten-free crackers. And you just dip into the juice. You can serve yourself there if you like. Up front, Gabe and I would like to serve you. And we have wine up here if you prefer that. Here's the thing, though. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ and you're looking at all these horrible things that are unfolding and you're saying, where does that leave me? It leaves you with an opportunity. As his loving God is reaching out to you every single day and everything that comes your way, every little trial that we go through is a reminder that we can't do it ourselves. The reminder here is that Jesus makes it very easy to come to him. We don't have to get our stuff in order. We don't have to study the Bible backwards and forwards. We don't ever have to even ever crack open the Bible. Do you know that? He is pursuing you and all he wants is your heart. Turn to him and say, Jesus, I want you in my life. I want you as my Lord and Savior. It's not this big fancy sinner's prayer that we have to say. You can say that if you like. We have a prayer team in the back who would love to pray that with you. But we can all say this again. Jesus, I need you in my life. I don't want fear. I don't want to be nervous about things that are going on in my life or things that are coming. I need you. We can all reaffirm that. So as we go into communion, let's celebrate that. And if you give your heart to Christ the very first time, celebrate communion with us again. And then worship with us, and they'll dismiss after a couple songs. Thank you, church.
Oh, God. 